Hello and welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So, pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 7 and today I get to share the podcast microphone with Kim Burrows who shares their personal mental health story with us. We know there is a rising mental health crisis and by talking so candidly about their journey, Kim helps us as parents see things from the perspective of a child. Kim's journey started at just six years old and now at 30 years, there is a real drive to advocate and talk openly about their mental health journey in the hope it helps others find their voice too. So as parents, educators, grandparents, nannies, or anyone else interested in raising confident, resilient children, I hope you are able to come away and reflect on how you might approach things slightly differently with your children. Now you are armed with all this new, incredible knowledge. As ever, if you enjoy this episode, I'd love it if you could subscribe and review this podcast so that others can follow us and we can spread the love. So until next time, welcome the incredible Kim Burrows. So I'm welcoming the phenomenal Kim who has, to me, been incredibly brave about her personal journey and is here to share and be unbelievably honest about her own personal journey. So Kim, welcome. Tell us about you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So yeah, I guess just to sort of introduce myself, I'm 30 years old. I am a non-binary identifying person. Um, So I use they, them pronouns. But I do also use she, her pronouns um, because it's a transition that I'm going through myself. I am a customer service manager based in London, having worked previously in the West End. So now I deal with lots of complaints and, and, and nice stuff too. Um, all to do with the live arts industry, which is very, very exciting. And we're excited to, to get back on our feet as well um, in just a few weeks' time. And I also have bipolar. I very recently was diagnosed with bipolar. And I also have anxiety and depression as well as OCD. So that's my mental health uh, profile, as it were. Um, and I am medicated for all of those and doing okay yeah you're you're doing well we've we talked even before we started recording about some a particular incident that has happened and how you've handled it very differently in terms of where the space you're at at the moment to maybe how you would have sort of managed it even 12 months ago what I want to say, first of all, to everyone who's listening, because Kim and I talked about this before. So Kim is obviously taking medication. And one, as we all know, when we take medication of any sort, is there's, there's a side effect. And one of the side effects that Kim is experiencing is restlessness. So we're just telling you now that if there, if Kim's going to get up and move around, then that might affect the sound. But that's just part and parcel of what she's living with each and every day. And the reason why I was so desperate to get Kim on, and I am so incredibly honoured that you said yes, is that I think it's really important that we as parents understand the journey that you went through because your journey started really, really young. 
Can you talk us through, because for you it started at six, didn't it? Yeah, I would say it probably actually started a bit earlier than that. When I look back now, um, my parents divorced when I was two years old and I went to live with my father and had quite a difficult relationship, I would say, as a child with my mother, which I think impacted on me more as an adult, the, the kind of impact that that's had has affected me more as an adult, but it probably started before I was six. But six is where it really came to light, I would say, and I had an eating disorder um, at six years old, but was not not formally diagnosed I was labeled as a naughty child rather than somebody that needed help right okay let's okay that blows my mind so for those of the parents that are listening they'll be like eating disorder at six tell us how did that show up as a parent who is obviously going to be being mindful of of their child how do they know at six So I would not eat in public at all. I would refuse to eat in public, and that included at my school. So I used to be very good at, in all honesty, making myself sick before lunchtime in the hope that I would then avoid being made to eat lunch. And then when I was made to eat lunch, I would then make myself sick again afterwards and and it seemed like a bit of an achievement to me at the time but I managed to go almost three weeks without having to eat food at school and I lost a lot of weight and I became quite unhealthy and I would cry and scream and and do anything possible to avoid eating in public and then I would go home and I guess you would call it these days binge eating and I would binge eat for as long as I possibly could, as long as my my dad would allow me to, and then not eat again for for 15, 16, 17 hours. Uh, I wouldn't eat breakfast. I would refuse to eat breakfast. And then we'd go through the whole rigmarole of lunchtimes again at school where I would simply refuse to eat lunch and I, again, would make myself sick. And this was a daily occurrence for about three months until somebody said, you're being naughty now, you need to stop. And you just need to eat lunch. And what happened then? Uh, What happened then was I changed my mind constantly about whether I would have school dinners or if I would have a packed lunch. And I would say to the school, oh, I'm meant to have a packed lunch today, so I don't need a school dinner. And then I wouldn't have a packed lunch. Even at six, it's amazing how, I guess you would say manipulative, you can be to a situation when you feel you need to control it. So I would I would say to them, no, I'm, I'm definitely meant to have a packed lunch today. Oh, I don't have a packed lunch. And now it's, you know, it's too late in dinner time to get a school dinner. So that was another avoidance technique. And then it eventually came to an end when I was, I was sat down and I was told, this is your lunchtime assistant. They're going to sit with you and make sure you eat every single lunchtime. And I was I was put on a table on my own. I was segregated and uh, I was watched and, and watched and watched. And I wasn't allowed to go to the bathroom before or after lunch. And I was just told to sort myself out to the point that they gave me well done stickers for eating my lunch, which did just didn't feel right because 
I I was being forced against my own want, basically. Can I pick up on a couple of things that you've said, Kim? Because the, I think these are quite important. One is about manipulation. Yeah, of course. One is about control and one is about avoidance. So let's talk with the manipulation bit because I think quite often, and I know you talked about this as well, is that children are seen as being difficult. They're being problems. They're trying to manipulate situations or they're just being challenging. From the perspective of a child who is clearly in from the story that you've told, clearly anxious and was actively trying to avoid a situation that made them feel made them feel anxious. And that's in essence what you do, isn't it? When you're anxious, you actively seek to avoid the situation that creates that anxiety. And you do that through whatever level of control. And you go to all manner of lengths because there's that real fear to talk us through... Because, you know, it, I guess it's that, it's that idea of that six-year-old mind of when you think back on it now, or even if you can access and sort of remember what it was like at the time, what was it particularly around this idea of eating in public that filled you with such dread that you had to try and avoid it at all costs? I was an overweight child and I was very aware of judgment. I think from a young age, because it was always something that was discussed of of being a bigger child. And when I say I was an overweight child, I, uh, we're not talking grossly obese. We're just talking a bit chunky, um, to be to be you know honest. And I think that I was aware of that and the judgment from eating in public. And also, my my father tried his very best, but our packed lunches were not the best quality and I think that you compare yourself and you compare to other people of oh well they've got branded crisps in their lunchbox and I've got Tesco value I don't want them to know that we're poor is is the honest truth and I and I have to say my father you know I'm a huge huge fan of my father my dad and he always tried his best and it was beyond his control you know, he had to make do with the situation that he was faced with. But there was definitely an element of comparison, which I think is something that even today is something that I struggle with, of comparing, you know, well, I went on holiday to Bognor Regis and they went on holiday to Benidorm. I think that's something that all of us struggle with, though, in, in all honesty. Um, and I think the other thing is that the truth is I just needed to be nurtured. And that's what I was looking for. I wasn't looking to be told off. I wasn't looking to be difficult. I was looking for somebody to say, there, there, it's okay. Whatever's going on, it's okay. And instead I was met with reprimands and punishment. And actually all I really wanted was a hug and somebody to ask me why I was, why was this happening? Yeah, I mean, I talk about this idea and I'd be interested to, to, to your perspective because obviously I... You know, I work with children and I work with families and I'm giving advice to parents. And my advice is always that, you know, whether your child is attention seeking or not, we there'll be a reason why they're acting in a particular way. So it's about responding to the emotion behind the behaviour rather than the behaviour itself, because there'll be a reason why. So as a parent, what help and support was there what what did you, you know what was your father told at the time what was suggested or was it very much dealt with as a 
Kim is behaving this particular way. We believe that she's attention-seeking or being manipulative and this is what we're going to do. Was there, where was that kind of emotional awareness and meeting you at your emotional needs at that time? Well, I was dragged off kicking and screaming to a child psychologist and I'm I, yeah, a company appreciated, you know, child psychologists are not a bad thing, but it wasn't what I needed. It wasn't what I needed and it seemed like even more of a punishment. So my poor dad was a single, is a single parent to five children. So he had a lot of us to worry about. You know, we were all at the point that my parents split up, we were all under the age of 10. So at this point, you know, my oldest brother, he was just 12 and starting secondary school, but he's also deaf. So it always felt like somebody was more important. Somebody was more of a concern and and that's no fault of my dad's at all but that's how it felt to me at six years old is well you know one of my brothers is deaf the other one of my brothers has behavioral problems and why why is nobody paying me attention so I think that nobody really cared about the reasoning behind it it was just let's stop this behavior and let's just you know let's get it dealt with and then move on from there And so when you went to see the psychologist, Kim, did you see the psychologist because they approached it as an eating disorder or did they approach it as you had behavioural issues? Um, As behavioural issues. It was approached very much as this is a naughty child, which is ironic because I was one of the highest achievers in my family and also in my school. One of the highest achievers, I had a reading age well beyond my years. I had writing age again beyond my years. I excelled at mathematics. And when I was sat in class, I was very capable, but it was just this eating that caused me problems. But I was taken off to see the child psychologist as a naughty child with a behavioural problem that needed to be fixed. But of course, it didn't, it didn't need to be fixed as such. It needed to be looked at as to why it was happening and actually the reasoning behind it. Yeah, and ultimately you were a child that was struggling and asking for help. Yes, but I didn't know how to ask, unfortunately. Exactly, yeah. Kim, you were talking about that you were one of five. What what position were you in the family dynamic? I'm the youngest, I'm the the youngest of five. And I think that's an important thing for us as parents to remember, and Kim, I'll, I'll ask you what you think about this, but you know, this idea that our children are whilst they might love their brothers and sisters, and sometimes they don't love their brothers and sisters and they get annoyed and frustrated and irritated with them, that in lots of ways, there's always some sort of comparison that is going on. And our children can often feel that their needs are not being met. And it's not because as parents, we're failing in some way. It's just, there's always going to be that element of comparison. Do you think that that was part of it, was that feeling like you were the youngest with siblings that you thought probably justifiably in your mind needed more help, that you were feeling left behind or not getting the support that you needed and this is what you needed to do in order to grab people's attention? I think it was a really interesting one and and I think this is, is, is something that I've never really explored before but there is a certain element of being the youngest child and youngest child syndrome, I would say, is is a thing. And you do feel very left behind. But on the other hand, I was the highest achieving of all five. 
And it was always kind of known that I would be the one that would go on to achieve probably university from a very young age. It's always been a joke of, oh, well, when Kimberly goes to university. So there was a pressure on me to fulfill that thought, that that kind of title, I suppose, that I was being given of the bright child. And, and so it was a mix of both, really, of comparing myself to my brothers and sisters of, well, I'm the youngest, I'm the least important. Oh, but I'm also the one that everyone says is going to achieve something. So I, I wouldn't say I ever felt that I was better than them when I was a child or, or now. But when you put that pressure on a child of, oh, you're going to achieve great things, and you don't hear that being said to your brothers and sisters so much you feel like you have to fulfil it because you're going to let down a lot of people otherwise. That's quite an interesting one. Let me ask you something then, Kim, that I've got is one of my theories that I talk about is I think that in lots of ways, children pick up these roles. Maybe your role was the clever one, but we put that children pick up these roles when they're younger, either inadvertently from the way that we label our children, the way we interact with our children, friendship, school, and all of these other things and that in some ways once a child sort of views themselves in that way it can be really difficult to break out of that so do you feel that your role in your family was the clever one and therefore whilst obviously to a lot of parents that would be like oh my goodness that would be amazing if I had a child who saw themselves as the clever one but does that bring with it a huge amount of pressure because that's an expectation you now have to live up to. Yeah, definitely. I think that we all had quite clear roles, particularly coming from a, a family where my mother was absent. My older sister, she was very much the mother role. And my brother Adam was very much the creative one, very much the arty one. Um, my brother Matthew, he was the oldest one. Simon was unfortunately the naughty one. And I was the clever one. And it does bring with it that expectation that I carried with me throughout my education, right up until the day I graduated my university and I, I finished my university degree. I had that expectation of myself that I had to achieve. My dad has a catchphrase in our family, which is, can do better. And he he never meant it to to be a pressure thing but I think that it became a bit of a pressure thing and 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 we've actually had a conversation about it now that I'm an adult and now that I've grown up and I said I don't know if you ever realized quite how much pressure that put on me I would get a B and he would say well you can do better because it's not an A or I'd get an A and you can do better because it's not an A plus even right up to my degree where I got a 2-1. Oh, well, you could have done better. You could have got a first. And that's not because my dad is some horrible, horrible, regimented, you know, man that wanted the very, very best. He's super proud of me. And he tells me every single day how proud he is of what I've achieved. I'm the youngest, but the first one to move out of home. I haven't lived at home now for 12 years. You know, I've made a life for myself in London, a world away from from Andover, where we're originally from. And he tells me how proud he is every single day. But growing up, I could always do better. And that is quite an interesting one. And, you know, what we're not saying to parents is that, you know, 
is get trying to get is making parents worry and think oh my goodness me I've got to be really careful of every everything I say but I guess it's about being mindful of the impact that some of our quite innocent remarks can be because I'm guessing that can do better as the catchphrase for your home impacted you in that way but potentially didn't impact your siblings in the same way at all or did it no it I would say it didn't because it was a catchphrase that was I would say almost exclusively reserved for me so I don't think my siblings felt that pressure um, in the same way but they did probably feel pressure in their own way and I'm sure if we had a conversation about it they would have their own moments that made them you know question if if they were good enough really you know it, it's as a as a child when you're told you can do better it doesn't matter what you achieve you think is my dad going to be proud is he going to be pleased do I want to tell him that I got a B on a test or do I want to just pretend like the test never happened? Yeah. From a sibling point of view, Kim, when you get back together as a group, do you all revert back to your type? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we really do. I would say that there are some some changes to those roles. Now, my brother Adam, who was the arty one, he is the only one of us five who now has a child. So his role is somewhat changed now that he's a father. But I'm still, yeah, my dad will still say to me, oh, if you're popping home, uh, could you help me with this? Can you can you help me write this letter? Or, or I've got a picture that needs hanging up. Can you Can you help me with that? I mean, I also did a stage management degree. So practically things like putting up pictures, you know, that's my bread and butter. <laughs> so those sorts of things, I think, are just are, are just ease, really. But my sister definitely still remains the mother role. She plans all the birthdays. She organises all the Christmases. She very much is, is mother hen, and she looks after us all in her own way. And, and now as an auntie, she almost, I mean, my my nephews and nieces, their, their mother is very much around and married happily to my brother. But my sister does take on a slightly motherly role with them as well. And my older brother, Matthew, is very much the sensible, well, I've given you two pounds pocket money. So why don't you spend a pound and save a pound? Because you never know. <laughs> um, and my brother, Simon, is very much the chuck them in the air and hope that you catch them kind of uncle. So it's really interesting to see how we've grown up with those roles and now implement those roles with our nieces and nephews yeah and how they kind of you know come back in again don't they into the the way that we are and um, kim can i take you back so i so if i'm a parent and maybe i'm thinking i'm worried about my six-year-old maybe their behavior isn't quite and, and a lot of what you've said has maybe resonated and we're thinking actually my child's probably maybe i'm not responding to the emotion behind the behavior or maybe i'm already seeing that they're calling out for help in some ways what there's two things to this what other signs were there obviously there was the big sign in terms of your anxiety around eating in, at school but I'm guessing there were other things that were that the anxiety was manifesting itself in so so could you a sort of tell us what were the other ways so as a parent how do I know how can I pick this up early and then b what were the, you know, if you were to give a parent advice with where you were at, at that point, 
what would you suggest that parents do to reach out and connect with their child who might be struggling? Yeah, so in terms of other signs of anxiety, biting my nails, I used to bite my nails a lot. And and no matter what anybody tried, I would not stop um, biting my nails. I didn't want to go to parties. If I was invited to other children's parties, that was my idea of hell. So I would I would say, well, I, I don't really like that person, so I don't actually want to go. Even though I was desperate for friends and desperate to be invited, I didn't want to go. I was... <sighs> I was, I guess nowadays you would probably describe me as a bit of a loner as a child, which is not, I don't think, necessarily a bad thing in in small amounts. But I would always choose books over people. I would not want to go out to playtime. I would want to sit in a corner and read a book on my own. And also I found solace in adults, or I tried to find solace in adults. So I would rather speak to my teacher than I would my friends. And that's something that actually, even growing up, I think, I've always found adults much more interesting and much more fascinating than other people my own age. But also, in terms of, like, practical things to look out for, almost like perfectionist skills. So I, at six years old, if I was writing something... If I made a mistake, there was no rubbing it out. I would have to start again. It didn't matter if it was the last word on the page. I had to start again. If there was a a full stop in the wrong place, start again. And I I was very much a perfectionist about my work. And I think that came from, again, that fear of being seen as a failure or a fear of being seen as somebody that wasn't good enough. And that's what a lot of my anxiety came from, was a fear of not being good enough. And I think if I'm being completely honest, that goes right back to my mother leaving, of why wasn't I good enough for her to stay? So though that's not the reason my parents split up, and, you know, there were their own reasons and their own stories, my mother chose to leave once I had been born. So why wasn't I good enough for her? So then that goes with you throughout life and into adult relationships of why am I not good enough? And that's something that my mental health preys on in my own weakness. When I'm having a bad mental health day, it's very much why am I not good enough? So, um, And is there that... And and I think also, as a child, I probably said those words. I probably said, why am I not good enough? And perhaps it was just sort of brushed aside of that's a silly question. Of course, you're good enough. Off you go. I think for a parent who perhaps is concerned about their children is just ask, because that's what I really wanted. I wanted somebody to ask me if I was okay and what was going on. And I wanted somebody to to say to me, you're not behaving in a way that is acceptable, but why? And I think it's the question why that we need to ask. And it's a very important question. And, and if I think about my, my nephew, Alfie, he's three, and, and everything is why, why, why? Why is the sky blue? Why, you know, we went to see the aquarium at the weekend. and Why do sharks swim in water? They're, they're questions we can't answer, but how brilliant that he's asking why so much. 
it's it's getting behind the the very basics. So I think ask your child why. Don't just assume that you know why. Ask them why. And also perhaps encourage them. If you notice that your child is anxious, don't allow your behaviours to feed into that. If possible, if you are an anxious parent, which I know plenty of, is is maybe you could do something together that takes both of you out of your comfort zone. And then at the end of the day, say, gosh, we did that together. And wasn't that fun? Because I didn't have that encouragement. I didn't have that person holding my hand saying, I know you're scared, but it's okay. It was just very much stop being silly and get on with it. Yeah, and that's a really important point, this idea of actually just modelling and helping and supporting our children. Because actually, when you're anxious, you want to avoid those situations at all costs. And each time you avoid it, you just reinforce the anxiety that's around it. So really, as parents, if we can scaffold and be there to support our children, I talk about this idea about a ladder. So if we just can allow them to take small steps in terms of exposing them to something that makes them feel uncomfortable, but don't overwhelm them, and then help them do that multiple times, they get they build their confidence and their resilience around that, and then you do the next one, and then the next step, and that you don't you know avoidance is the worst thing when it comes to anxiety because it just builds it which leads me to a why question then for you kim so the point that you made about being alone or just enjoying reading books and, and talking to adults i just want to ask how much of that was your potential avoidance of judgment and feeling not good enough so instead of actually being out there with friends and potentially getting the judgment and possibly the rejection was that just a self-preservation mechanism? Just actually, do you know what? I much prefer to read books because that way I can control this. Whereas if I put myself out there to try and make friends and be part of a bigger group and you reject me, that would be too much. I can't deal with that. So I'll just avoid it. Or was it genuinely something else? No, I think it probably was a self-preservation thing. But the ironic thing is that that self-preservation thing then became the hot topic of my bullying really you know when I was bullied as a child oh you're such a nerd you're such a bookworm you know you haven't got any friends well yes but that was choices that I made I'm you know I I don't know I can't go back to being six years old and do it again but if I could perhaps I would do it differently because in trying to avoid the the bullying and the rejection and and trying to avoid the judgment I became more judged. So it's a really hard thing to balance. And and I did have one very, very good friend. I'm still very good friends with her now, you know, 24 years later. And she saw through it, but she would also come and sit and read books with me. She would, you know, she'd say, well, why don't we spend morning break reading a book and lunch break, we'll go outside. And And she, you know, I guess I talk about that wanting someone to hold my hand she very much did hold my hand but there's only so much a six-year-old can do for another six-year-old unfortunately and what I needed was perhaps those adults in my life to say no come on it's it's time or maybe one of them to take me by the hand and take me out to the playground and say right go on go and find someone to play with but instead they just allowed me to cocoon in this safe bubble that I then tried to stay in for as long as possible 
Well, that's like a protection as well, isn't it? And in some ways, do you think, Kim, you just stayed under the radar? You were good at school, I'm guessing, once you'd gone past this being labelled as difficult and, and this behaviour, did, did your academic excellence then shine through and then you were slightly below the radar? So it was, well, Kim likes to read. That's what they do. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's a really interesting thing that I I think about schools, which is you have the naughty children. And when the naughty children, and I use this term naughty children loosely, but you have the naughty children. And when they're good, it's recognised. Oh, well, so-and-so is normally a little monkey and now they're being really well behaved. Let's reward that. But when you're always good you're not ever rewarded for it because that's just who you are. And so you do slip under the radar and then until it comes to things like Ofsted or test results and uh, examinations, when schools want to put you on this pedestal of, well, look how wonderful this child is. They've done their GCSEs three years early and they've come out all together with 16 A stars to see and aren't they wonderful and we're going to really appreciate this person today because it looked good on us but nine times out of ten a teacher wouldn't even know my name and that's I think my problem with schools is that the recognition falls in the wrong places and it falls at the wrong times. Do you think, Kim, going back to what you'd said earlier on, do you think that that's also a little bit about how you felt, and this is no criticism of your father, but is that also a little bit of how you felt in terms of the time and attention at home again? Because you're, if you're good and you're clever and you generally keep your nose clean at home, that we're stretched for time as parents, that again, you're slightly under the radar, you look like you're coping and that everything seems to be okay. So as parents, we naturally tend to firefight. Yeah, I would say so. And my dad had, you know, my dad had a lot of his own battles that he had to, you know, he had to to face as a single father, but also just as as a human, as a man, as a person. He had his own battles and he had his own mental health problems that he had to deal with. And his mother, my grandmother, was quite sick a lot throughout my childhood. And we actually lost her when I was just nine years old. So my dad had a lot to deal with. So if you've got a child that just gets on with their homework or just happily sits themselves down and reads a book, you're not going to stir that pot. If you've got enough else on your plate, you're you're definitely just going to to kind of, yeah, you're going to let sleeping dogs lie, I guess. You know, for want of a better phrase, it's very much like if you are not causing me trouble right now, then I just I've got someone else that definitely will be. So you just carry on doing your thing and I'm going to deal with these 10 other problems that I've got to deal with, as well as working. You know, my dad worked full time. So he had that to comprehend with as well. And 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 five children. And I mean, I have no children. I have no want to have any children, but I can imagine that one is hard enough, let alone five. <laughs> no, it's good. There's only so much of your time that there is. And so it is a challenge. And to be doing that single-handedly, I think he, d- he did like a phenomenal job. Kim, I want to ask you some more now about how the rest of your journey has been. The, the data shows that on average, so this is on average, which means that it can be less 
and it can be significantly less and significantly more. But on average, it takes 10 years for someone to get the right mental health support. And I know that it has taken you 24 and it's still a work in progress. Yeah, when it comes to official diagnosis, I guess I would be classed as a late bloomer. Um, I didn't get an official diagnosis of anxiety and depression until I was in my early 20s. I didn't go on to antidepressants for the first time until I was 22, despite clearly being clinically depressed before that. And then it's taken me up until this year at the age of 30 to get a diagnosis of bipolar. And now I'm currently undergoing treatment, but that's a work in progress. And of course, we're fighting resources are somewhat limited or very limited, to be honest, you know, in general, but with the pandemic. So I've very much been fighting for now probably about five months this year just to get medication. And now that I'm on medication, as we mentioned at the beginning, I'm now dealing with the side effects of medication. Um, And it's taken a very long time to get to where I am. But I'm also very proud of where I am now in my mental health journey and also in my personal journey and the steps that I've taken to get here and and the fight that I've had to kind of still sit here today and be able to talk about it and say I have survived some pretty horrible stuff you know I I I lost my partner that was very hard I also have had my own battle with my own sexuality and gender identity that's been another journey that I've been on alongside my mental health journey so to sit here today and to be able to talk about it I'm incredibly proud of me and I would say to my dad, I can't do better. (laughs) And I'm incredibly proud of you, Kim. You've been mind-blowingly phenomenal, as I knew you would be. I think we need to get you back on and I think we need to do an episode specifically around the gender because I do think that that's a really, really important aspect and I do know that a lot of our children are really struggling as part of this bit so I'm hoping that you'll be happy to do this again and have another kind of honest and open discussion there's one thing for me that I'm desperate to ask and I hope you don't mind me asking this but have you had contact with your mother since? Yeah uh, I have it's yeah, it's it's actually the thing I find hardest to talk about. But yes, we we have had contact, but it's been difficult, and and that relationship that... has been different for every single one of us. Um, each, yeah, every all five of us are from the same two parents, and I know that for every single one of us, that journey has been something entirely different. And it's not really something that we discuss because I think we have to, as a family, we deal with it all personally. I say we don't discuss it. I mean, we don't discuss it as a family because how I feel about it is different to how my brother feels about it, for example. 
Yeah. Do you think that it's... Oh, I'm not going to probe too much then if it's something that you find difficult to talk about, but do you feel that there's a connection between dealing with that and your own personal journey in terms of healing and the connection to your emotional well-being, or do you think that there's a disconnect? I think if you ask every psychiatrist I've seen, there's a connection. <laughs> but I think that there is there are bigger events in my life that have had more of an impact and more of a that have have been i guess more damaging you would say than that because as as much as i've obviously talked about my dad and and there are some negative aspects to that my dad is incredible and my dad did the very very best job bringing us up so you know i i lucked out really when it came to my dad because he was everything that i could have wanted from a father or from a parent really growing up so and I think what's important probably for parents to take away is ultimately it's about how the child or the adult now in your case perceives and views a situation not how anyone else views it my views as a psychologist you know my view as a parent or somebody else's view as a teacher or or supporter or psychiatrist it's all relative to how you view a given situation if it doesn't feel significant to you but other things do then that's where I guess we need to be focusing our support and healing and nurturing and strategies around rather than going down a blind alley that we think is more important yeah for sure and what I would say I guess if if I had one last message on this is don't assume that you know how a situation will make a child feel don't assume that you know why they're behaving the way they're behaving or the way that they're acting is is ask them because actually people probably put my behavior down to the breakup of my parents' marriage. But I was two years old at the time. I didn't stop eating because my mummy didn't love me. Actually, I stopped eating because I didn't feel good enough for anybody. So if somebody had asked me that, they might well have been surprised at the answer. And sometimes it's the smallest thing that as a child unsettles you. And if you've got someone assuming or telling you, oh, you feel this way because X, Y, and Z happened to you. And actually, it's something as simple as your shoes don't fit right and they're hurting your feet. To, to put it, you know, in the plainest of terms, that can be more damaging. Yeah, but also I'm, sa- I'm wondering, Kim, is it also you just don't feel that you've been validated? You don't think feel that people are, are, are hearing you because they're assuming something else rather than asking. Completely. Absolutely, completely. You don't feel heard because you're not getting the chance to actually say what it is that needs to be said. You're being told, this is what you feel. And we should never tell anybody how they feel. You know, even a, even a baby in the simplest forms of a very young child has different cries with different things. If we just assume, oh, this baby is crying because it's hungry and we just keep feeding it every time it cries and we don't actually look at the wider picture, that baby is going to cry even more. So why do we not try to read older children in the same way that we would read a baby and we would try different things? We'd, oh, okay, don't want a bottle, do you need, you know, do you need to be changed? Are you just grouchy? Are you tired? Why do we stop reading children the moment they start talking? Because actually it's when they start talking that they start saying less. Oh my God, that's so powerful. 
that's such a powerful bet to sort of end on and it goes back to what you said before Kim it's about asking why let's just ask our children why let's start having that conversation Kim I am so grateful so grateful that you've given us this incredible insight and we've only literally touched the sides I I really hope that we're going to be able to get you back and we're going to talk specifically about this the journey in terms of your of identity so Kim thank you so much you're so welcome and thank you for thank you for having me